Yeah, we're doing some doing some shows. Well, we've got this one show tomorrow night, and then quite a bit more in the new year. You doing doing some media appearances as well while you're out here? A little bit. The album's coming out. What's the what's the date? Uh, <laughs> February. This is an important date for you. It just should be like tattooed well, on just, your arm. It keeps changing. Okay. So that's why I keep not knowing what the date is because yeah. there have been about twelve dates. And it's, anyway, they, they were, we were talking about we're doing some more recording. We've been sort of a lot of stuff's been up in the air. February sixteenth is that the latest? I think that's okay. the latest. So you got the. <laughs> The Valentine's Day market? Oh, corner? sure. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Is this like major label stuff? Why have things bounced around so much? Well, I think part of it was getting some international involvement. And yeah. so sort of the more players that came to the table, the more people wanted time to sort of work on it and get something together. So initially, we were looking at October as a release. In the late summer, early fall, we started speaking with BMG in Germany, UK, and France. And they decided that they wanted to get involved and that they needed more time to sort of build a story over there because, as I'm sure you know, you can't release a thing in one territory anymore. Um (laughs) What does build a story mean, like, as far as what your story is? is behind the record? Oh, well, I think like having me play a little bit okay. in the territory and having having yeah. us do a little bit of press so that when the record comes out, somebody in the country knows who I am. So we're not just releasing it to deaf ears, you know, I yeah. think that was sort of the strategy overall. But you know, it's not my forte. So really, I'm I'm just here to sing. <laughs> I have to imagine at this point, you're just ready for it to just be out already. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. I It, it kind of feels like an overdue baby or something yeah. like it's it's been what's great about it is that by now we We've had a lot of time to play it live, and so that part of that part of the thing has come together. Which before the record was finished, we hadn't played it live all over the country, and so we didn't mm-hmm. have that same kind of rapport that we have built up now with the with the band. Is the band a cohesive unit at this point? Yes and no. I mean, I've sort of got a few different cohesive units, <laughs> and then we sort of mix and match yeah. as need be because all the guys I'm working with are, are really great and in high demand. And until I'm touring all the time. It's really hard to sort of, I mean, for any artist, it's really hard to sort of have the same roster of people all the time unless it's a kind of, a, unless you sure. are a band. A band, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of this, in a way, kind of came together in the studio. That's true, yeah. What was the process for actually pulling together this collection of music? It all sort of occurred over... Uh, several months really myself and the producers uh, sort of independently did our own research and digging and listening and then it all culminated in a meeting here in New York I guess in I want to say June where we sort of locked ourselves in Steve Greenberg's office and we sat with our laptops and played the songs that we sort of felt the strongest about um, and then had discussions about each one and why we thought it could work or not or whatever and I mean the main criteria for me was that either it had to be a story that I could relate to personally or it had to be something a story that I wanted to tell something that was real that was really compelling to me and it had to yeah and in both cases it had to be a beautiful melody that mm-hmm. I wanted to sing a million times yeah. because that's kind of the deal when you make a record is you know as I'm sure you know you got to sing it a lot sure so, um, so they had to be songs that I loved and I think we sort of accomplished that generally um and yeah I'm, I'm sort of happy where where it all ended up are you sort of making playlists for yourself like spotify playlists for yourself in your kind daily of. life and integrating these songs into your life before you started pulling them together for the record yeah absolutely i mean there was there were months where i was doing nothing but listening to yeah. 
chess music. I mean, there are worse things in the world. Oh, yeah. Well, it's such a vast collection. Where do you begin? I had no choice but to really delve into it because I felt if I didn't, then I would probably be missing something great. And so I was really fortunate, though, to have Steve and Mike, who both had their own immersive process. And then by the time we got together, we all had a clear sense of which of the songs were you know, had risen to the top. How did you end up at chess? I have to give Steve a lot of credit for the concept. Initially, I had suggested, you know, maybe doing a kind of Northern Soul thing where we kind of picked some uh, some deep cuts. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, as a singer from Canada, you know, there's already a Northern kind of thing there. And so I thought that could be a cool (laughs) tie-in. Like geographically? Well, geographically. I mean, we're just down the road from Chicago and Detroit, which is where a lot of Great white Northern Soul. You know, sort of, yeah, a little bit, and and I, you know, my, my family has some history in Chicago. Yeah. Anyway, so there was a. I thought there was kind of a neat tie in there, and you know, there's nothing to say down the road I won't be singing yeah. some some Motown or some other stuff, but. Steve really had this vision of doing the chess stuff and and once we and one thing that really attracted me to the project was that chess has such a breadth of styles and yeah. artists and that is sort of a reflection of my own being as a musician. There's no house sound in the way that there was with like a Motown Exactly. For yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean you have sort of the some of the pioneers yeah. of blues and rock and soul and R&B and sort of all in one in one place and so it was kind of a cool cool spot to to go digging. Northern Soul would have been different from the standpoint that part of what I think has driven the concept of Northern Soul over the years is the this idea of like obscurity, right? This idea of kind of crate digging and yeah. finding the songs that nobody's heard. The bar is really different when you're when you're uncovering something nobody's heard and you're maybe singing it for them for the first time and in the case of at least like all of the singles that have come out for this record so far, these are pretty well-known songs. They are. And I mean, we really wanted to, in the case of the really well-known songs, do them in a very different yeah. way. You know, you can't you can't do Chuck Berry better than Chuck Berry. Sure. So there's, you know, you kind of have to do something. You have to do something else. Yeah. So that's kind of why they ended up so radically different from the original versions. Were you hesitant, though, to take on a group of songs that are so familiar to people? Yes and no. I mean, I knew the reviews would be sort of mixed in the yeah. same way that I respond sort of emotionally. Emotionally, like not even in a not in a cerebral way, yeah. but in a visceral way, yeah. almost to covers of songs that I love. I work in tech during the day, and if Facebook changes a button on its site, people flip the fuck out. Yeah, and you're like, hey, let me take some, let me take a song for sure that you've heard a million times and do my version of. It. Well, yeah, so I completely expected that yeah. some people would just not like these versions, and I I knew that going in, and I know that that's my response to some people's versions of songs that are completely flipped around. But I've also had the experience of hearing radically different covers of songs that I loved, and I love those covers too. And likewise, you know, some people have responded really positively to what we've done. So I think, I mean, I kind of knew that going in, that it was going to be divisive. And, you know, and at least people are responding one way or the other. I feel like that's a win. It seems like it's pretty overwhelmingly positive at this point. Oh, yeah, for the most part it is. And that's great. I mean, it's definitely, especially in the early goings, it's really nice to have to have some support. When you do go take sort of a 180 from, you know, Chuck Berry song, for example, you do run the risk of alienating people in completely the other direction, right? Of utterly altering a song that they are familiar with. Of because course. part of the hook is that these are songs that you know. You know, I'm I'm not necessarily somebody that you've heard of, but maybe your familiarity with this music is what might pull you into it in the first place. 
Sure, absolutely. And, you know, it's no secret, Steve Greenberg worked with Joss Stone. And, you know, that was really, she had a lot of success doing this exact thing, doing uh, covers that were radically different. Some songs more well known than others, of course. But I think, you know, it worked really well for Steve with Joss. And and I think we had a sort of a chemistry that that he sort of recognized from the very beginning. So that's part of the reason for choosing. And also, you know, I wanted to do, I love Rescue Me and I love You Never Can't Tell and Who Do You Love? And I want it. It just so happened that some of the songs in the chess catalog that were the more famous ones were also the ones that I liked the best and and wanted to sing. Sure. I mean, there's a reason uh, why... They sure. Rose to the well, top exactly, and... exactly. So, I mean, you know, part of it, of course, is like, you know, is strategy and like, you know, yeah. yeah, people taking an interest because they've heard this song before, even if this is a radically different sort of rendition. Um, but more importantly, it was these were songs that I wanted to sing. <laughs> Let's take You Never Can Tell as the example here. With a song like that, when you are, in a sense, kind of reimagining it and, mm-hmm. and turning it on its head, how much of it is driven by this push to make it completely different from the original? And how much of it do you feel? Feel like there's just sort of something inherent in the music that you're bringing out in a different way, in a way that that Chuck Berry didn't in the original. With You Never Can Tell specifically, I think that the emotional content of the lyric um, actually did drive our approach more so than the sort of bigger desire just to do something different in the sense that in Chuck Berry's version the pace of the song is so frenetic he could not be Chuck Berry like he couldn't help it yeah he couldn't help but have every he was so he had such an iconic sound that he couldn't help but have every song sound like that Uh, side note there's a song of his that I discovered that sounds nothing like Chuck Berry called Havana Moon which I love and it's it's completely Mm. on the you wouldn't know that it was Chuck Berry I didn't know initially Uh, anyway that was one of the deep cuts that we didn't do side note but back to You Never Can Tell his version of You Never Can Tell is his recording of the song is so fast paced that the lyrics kind of fly by and Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's this sort of melancholy or something that's it's I don't know it's it's strange. Yeah. We, I didn't even hear it uh, until we started playing with the tempo a little bit, and then it sort of took on a life of its own. You're speaking musically or or lyrically in terms of that? lyrically, yeah, lyrically, and and yeah, because I mean musically we changed it completely, um, melodically, yeah, we changed it completely. But there's something about there's it was sort of two sides of the same coin. They, they get married when they're teenagers. Hey, here's this huge life-changing experience that we're going through while we're really young. I mean, there is there is a lot to work with well, there, isn't I think, there? And I wonder whether maybe part of it is in the context of today and yeah. the reality that a lot of marriages don't last, mm. and especially ones that begin when you're a child. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's some pretty staggering stats where, like, if you get married before X age, I don't remember now what it is, but, you know, I think it's in your 20s or something. If you get married before this age, the likelihood of you staying together more than than five years is almost zero. It's like it's like staggeringly low. And so I wonder whether you know my own <laughs> my own upbringing as a sort of you know a child of divorce and uh, you know yeah. basically everybody in my family has been divorced. Everybody there's a, there's a lot of that that I think I couldn't help but sort of maybe read into you know going looking back at this. It is an interesting thing that I think a lot of people struggle with when they're working on a cover song is is bringing th- their own context to it, bringing like sure. their own life experiences to it. In a sense, if you're filtering it through yourself too much, you feel like you might potentially lose something that made 
the original so special. Sure. And I mean, it was not at all a conscious decision yeah. to, to do that. I think what you're referring to is a sort of a subconscious yeah. thing that you can't help but do when you're performing a song that has really poignant lyrics and these universal concepts of, you know, youth and love and the concept of forever and, and that being attainable. Mm. So, I mean, it's obviously a beautiful love song on the face of it. And I think Chuck Berry's version does service to that story. And I, and that's certainly, you know, when I first heard the song, it was, it was a happy song about these kids in love. But yeah, there was something about slowing yeah. it down that made us sort of feel the blue part of it. You call these songs, you sit down with your computers and, and figure out a, a rough set list. What When you leave the office, what's the process of actually kind of living with that song for a little while? What happens between that decision-making process and you recording in the studio? There were a few months after that, again, before mm-hmm. the final list was decided upon. I think we left the office that day with about 20-ish songs, maybe 25 songs that we knew we would we would still be... Uh, refining. I mean, after that, it was sort of up to me. Everybody that was sort of at the table had had their say, and anything that was obviously not going to be done for any of the reasons that I sort of laid out before were set aside. And the songs that sort of met those criteria, I was listening to sort of day and night for for a couple of months just to, to, well, actually, you know what? The ones that I knew were going to be on, I didn't listen to over and over because I didn't want to absorb too much of those performances. I was going to ask you, there's an issue in that, right? I mean, especially if you're sure. kind of going out of your way to make it sound different. No, sure. And, you know, Rescue Me, Who Do You Love, You Never Can't Tell. These ones, we we all knew those ones were yeah. going to be on there. So The ones you already knew super well anyway. Well, yes, exactly. And so, and, and I, I wanted to make sure that I, that the performances were very different. And so I didn't want to absorb too much of those. But the ones that I was sort of on the fence about or that I wasn't as familiar with, yeah. I, I was, I, well, actually what I was doing is I was sort of sneaking them into playlists that I already had in the hopes that, you know, if they were great, I, I sort of thought that they would pop them, they would pop out to me if they were just playing in the in the background somewhere while I was, mm. I don't know, like having a run or <laughs> doing a something, they wouldn't stick out like Rescue Me or something that I knew. And I guess I'm thinking right now of going back to where I belong um, or some of the other ones that are not quite as well known. Those ones I did sit with a little longer and, and just had to yeah, I had to consider the lyrical content and how did it feel in my voice and did I love this melody? And that was, the melody really for me is is the main, the main uh, sort of bait. Yeah. <laughs> The, the hook. Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> to, to continue the, 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 the fishing. Hook. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Were any of them particularly difficult to inject your, your own voice into? Well, actually, it's funny you say that because you never can tell, which yeah. we've now spoken a lot about yeah. already. It's a lead um, single, right? Yeah, and, and it's so funny because that one, when we were in the studio, I actually found that one very difficult to interpret because it was sort of the farthest away from the kind of soul and R&B sound of some of the songs that are really sort of more up my stylistic alley and more of what I sing day to day and more of my original music sort of fits into that category. Whereas You Never Can Tell, the melody that you're hearing was actually written by my producer, Steve Greenberg, decades ago. It had his 
fingerprint on it a little bit and and well it, it did 100% it had his fingerprint on it and so that one was was a challenge for me because yeah just just because the melody and, and the pacing of it and everything was was a little bit foreign to me more so than searching for my baby or sincerely or some of the ones that are really sort of more in the soul camp or the R&B camp and that are kind of more like in the world of what I do in my own songwriting. So it was a surprise to me, of course, when we finished the the record and I started playing the songs for people and everyone was really reacting to You Never Can mm. Tell more than some of the other songs that I sort of felt, you know, were stronger or that I performed better or whatever. So yes, it was that was a surprise. Do you feel a different sense or, or even more accomplishment when you feel like you've really kind of rebuilt this thing from the ground up? You know, yes and no. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I guess Because obviously, like, you don't want to go out and feel like a karaoke singer. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, of course I wanted to be, you know, any cover, you know, unless you're in a tribute band or something, or in general, the covers that I do, I want them to have their own flavor. But I guess at the end of the day, I really just want it to be a great performance. And if if it's a little bit closer Mm. to the original, but I feel really happy with what I've done and with how the band sounds and everything that I can live with uh, with it being a little closer closer to that and if it's on if it's on the other end of the spectrum but the performance isn't great then you know that's not good enough either so it has to be some kind of combination of the two I guess I know you've had releases in the past but this is really kind of the first really big one for you how did it end up that it was a covers record versus you working on your own songs well you know and I've been working on my own songs throughout this time yeah. um, and especially now when we're we're sort of we've, we've finished recording uh, this album and we're getting into touring and I have some time really to get back into the into the studio mm-hmm. uh, especially over the holidays and things like that where things tend to tend to quiet down but yeah when when we when I first started working with the label there were a handful of songs of mine that they really liked but they didn't feel like there was an entire album's hmm. worth of material that that they wanted to, to put out at that time but we wanted to make a record this year <laughs> that's kind of that's, this is an easier way to get there right it kind of bought us a little bit of time yeah. and, and um i really wanted to make a record i really wanted to get on the road and we all sort of felt that it made sense to to you know to find some really great songs and i mean for what it's worth on my album of, of original music which will be the the next record mm. i'm you know a lot of those are co-written and I'm, I'm i have a couple of songwriting friends whose songs may appear on the album i may not have written all of those all of the yeah. songs that appear here on there either so for me i mean the main thing is just singing the great singing the best songs and and so we i mean we all sort of agreed we didn't have a full album's worth of songs that were top echelon that that would appear on on the album of originals and so this has really bought us a little bit of time and i've been refining refining my stuff and working it out with the band live and it's really starting to come together so i'm I'm looking forward to to getting in the studio and putting that stuff to tape so those songs start trickling up and they make their way into their into the live set. I mean, when you tour on this exactly. record, people are going to be hearing the new songs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially in the longer sets, we we did some some tour uh, some touring in Europe recently, and uh, we were we were doing longer shows there. And so, yeah, I, I sprinkled in a few of my original songs, and they they actually seem to to flow quite seamlessly yeah. with the chess stuff. And you know, that's part of the bigger story here is that you know I wouldn't have done some country covers or something that didn't at all make sense with my original music. The stuff that I do is is a little bit rock and roll and is soul and R&B. And, and, and so, yeah, so, you know, we, we kind of all made sense anyway. <laughs> 
Do you think it sort of shifts the expectations when the first record is is a covers record, like in terms of what you're going to be putting out in the future? Or do you, do you think that this ends up being a good hook to pull people in? Well, I'm hoping it's the latter. Yeah. Uh, I'm hoping that, you know, because there's just, there's so many artists today making really great music all over the world. And there's there really is, uh, and, and there's also just a lot of noise happening, yeah. you know? And so how do you sort of break through? And and so I'm hoping that somebody sure. who's who knows a Chuck Berry song or knows one of these songs might become aware of who I am as a person and as a singer and then when my album of originals comes out they'll be that much more likely to listen to it because they've already heard an interpretation of a song that they that they love but you know it remains to be seen how that all yeah. how that'll all play out how long have you been playing music professionally for professionally I guess... Let's start with how long have you been playing music and we'll, well work from I've there. Well, I've been singing since I was a baby, basically. Sure. And I declared to my mother when I was five, I don't remember this, of course, because I don't remember much yeah. from that time, but sure. she maintains that I declared when I was five quite triumphantly that I would be a singer when I grew up. She must have been and thrilled. So, that news. Yes. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> um, she was, yeah, she was thrilled when I quit my job and yeah. <laughs> decided to pursue music full time as an adult. But I, I mean, I've been working professionally uh, as a singer since I was about 15. Mm-hmm. I got my first jobs as a, my first singing jobs doing uh, radio jingles. And yeah, I happened to, to form a relationship with a composer and producer in radio and television in Toronto. And he really took me under his wing and gave me some opportunities that I otherwise wouldn't have had. And so that's sort of where professionally it began. Yeah. But I was singing forever. So for a while, I was doing a lot of more jazz stuff. I sang the American Songbook and that beautiful music. And I was in a rock band for a few years. And, you know, I I just want to sing. That's really... You know, I just want to sing great songs. At what point do you quit your job? Well, you know, I, actually, I so at that point, I was I was in I was a moon. Well, I don't even know. You can call it moonlighting. I guess it was all moonlight at that point because yeah. <laughs> it was day job during the day, and then I would often have a jazz gig early in the evening because those uh, gigs tend to be a little earlier. And then I'd have uh, one of my rock band gigs in the e- in later in the evening. So that was kind of what my life looked like for a little while. And then I started working with Sony ATV in Toronto and they started hooking me up with songwriters and I really started honing my songwriting craft and it was around that time that that I sort of had the ability to stop to stop doing the day job thing you didn't just quit out of nothing you had a bit of support structure behind you support from them and that was really important and I I don't think I would have made that choice at that time had I not had their support I definitely took some odd jobs and things after that but I wasn't stuck I wasn't stuck in an office all day every day which was really keeping me from from working on my songwriting and and really getting the show together and because it's really hard to do that you know when you get home from from that kind of day what year was that roughly that that you you have you set a relationship with Sony? That would have been 2010. Okay, so that's about seven years ago yep. now, and it seems like things have really, really started happening within what the last two years. Yeah, I mean there were other things that were happening, sure. but they were they were EP kind of more and, localized, yeah. and we had a lot of success in Canada. But you know, Canada is a small market, yeah. and and I had some conversations with labels outside of Canada. And they weren't people who I wanted to work with. I mean, 
signing with a label is a bit like getting married. There's contracts and it's finances and you really and have to share. divorces. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> and you have to really share a vision for the future. And yeah. a lot of the, and so that's kind of why this has taken a little while to get to sort of get off the ground is that I was very, I had a very clear vision and I wanted to work with people who shared that vision and who didn't want to put me down a path that I didn't want to go down. And so I feel very fortunate, even though it's taken a little while, that I'm now working with some people who share my vision and, you know, who who are willing to back it up. Because that's the other thing is some people share your vision, but then you say you want to take a band on the road and they say, oh, well, how about just traveling with a bunch of tracks? And that's not my vision for the live show. So, yeah, I'm I'm very fortunate. How much of that vision was sort of, you know, you contrasting what's happening now in popular music was that something people were trying to some of these larger labels oh, yeah. were trying to rope you into oh yeah definitely autotune land and yeah basically yeah. yeah and i was played a lot of examples of things oh well we love what you're doing but have you thought about something like this and yeah. then they'd play me some music or they'd send me you know send me an email with with uh, a particular track and you know what and it would be a fine song it's a it's, you know it's a fine pop song and you know, but it's just not what I wanted to do. Uh, so <laughs> at some point, you have to you have to put your foot down if yeah. this is what you're going to be doing for the rest of your career, potentially, if you're lucky. <laughs> so yeah, it, it definitely ha- had to do with what I was hearing on the radio. And a lot of knowing what you want to do is knowing what you don't yeah. want to do. It must have been tempting, though, at some point, you know, after having worked so long, to really break into music in a big way to maybe sell out just a little bit. Oh, it was very tempting. And I remember having conversations with friends and boyfriends and my parents (laughs) and all kinds of people having conversations with them about the conversations that I had had with various people in the industry who had sort of encouraged me to go down a different path. You know, I understood where they were going. I mean, the industry has sort of been, I don't know, cannibalized in a lot of ways. And a lot of, you know, the labels have self destructed and there's just been a there's been a lot of yeah and and so anyway so I understand the desire of some of the people in the industry to be very conservative in their choices Mm -hmm. and if they could see that x sold however many records or is doing having a certain amount of success then it seems like a safe choice to just want to do that thing again with the next person that walks through the door and so you know I don't even fault those people really for for wanting to have me do the thing that they saw someone else succeeding at but for me it's like the people who who I aspire to be like are not necessarily the people who right now in this moment have sold however millions of records and it has a lot more to do with the kinds of records that I love and the kinds of singers that those people were and they weren't people who used autotune and they were people who toured with a live yeah. band and so that's kind of what I have always aspired to and and that's why we're we're at where we are today because of the the environment of the music industry right now you can kind of count probably count on you know one or two hands like the people who have really broken through in that way while completely bucking the popular trend like it it does seem like the vast majority of people who break through are really in whatever the mold of the current zeitgeist is at the moment. Absolutely. And, you know, I was aware of that. Yeah. <laughs> it's. I guess I've, I've, I've had a few conversations with musician friends of mine who, you know, we, we sort of talk about how, yeah, you know, if, you're, if, if, you're, if your primary objective yeah. 
is to make money, then absolutely, if that's your primary objective, like, of course, we all want to make a living and we all would like to earn money doing what yeah. we love. But if my primary objective was to make money, I would have, you know, I would have gone to law school or I would have become an accountant or I would have done something else that also was contrary to my creative impulses or whatever, because that's a way surer bet than, than making a pop record that sounds like other people's mm-hmm. pop records, you know? So it kind of never really made sense sense to me if you're in music because you love music and because you want to do something creative then you should stay true to the vision that you have even if the even if the stats would suggest that you're not going to make as much money because if your goal is money then you should, yeah. probably shouldn't be in this in this industry in the first place you know if that's your primary objective it's true and and i think the when it comes to a creative pursuit the only thing worse than failing is failing while completely compromising right? on what you exactly and it's like i could like we, we could fail anyway yeah. right so i'd rather fail with honor and dignity and having you know and and knowing that i that i did my best and that i made i made some music with with people who i who i wanted to work with and that i can be proud of of what i've done and you know yeah you're right i mean that's that's there's always a chance that you yeah. can fail uh so you might as well you know have fun in the process yeah when you look at the major label roster it's like they're littered with all these people who are clearly trying to tap into a certain kind of music but the fact of the matter is is if you really feel strongly about something and you do something different then it, it's going to find an audience it's not it may not you know find a huge mainstream audience but at, at some point those like-minded people are going to discover what you're putting out yeah, in the world. I mean, world. well, I think about an art. I think about artists like Alabama Shakes mm-hmm. or Leon Bridges or Janelle Monae, who is yeah. like sort of more pop of the three of those. But even still, I mean, like Arch Android is yeah. like it's a totally bizarre record. Yeah, yeah. It's, it goes all it's all over the map. And and you know, th- these these artists have had a ton of success. And and this is the kind of thing you know when I when I think about artists who are succeeding now, they're not all doing four on the floor pop music. They're not all using auto-tune it's you know it's not so there there is there are a lot of people who are having success you know maybe they're I, I don't know I don't know what their finances look like but they may not be having as much financial success as somebody that's doing exactly the, who, who is exactly in that mold but you know but but those are the kind of artists yeah. that I aspire aspire to to tour with or to sort of yeah when I listen to those records that's what makes me want to keep making records yeah I mean the fact of the matter is is that popular music because of technology and all these other things isn't popular the same way it used to be so you you can be successful but on a completely different level. I yeah. mean, I know you play with members of the Roots. That's a great example of yeah. like a really good level of success to strive for and they did it by not sounding like anyone else out there. Absolutely. After all of this time of paying your dues and playing music after work and you know over the course of a decade plus at this point, are things starting to snowball now? I mean, are things happening like really quickly at this point? You know what? They are. And I think part of that is the momentum yeah. that having, you know, having uh, having a record, having a new record, because, you know, for a while, the I hadn't been in the studio for, for a while. And, and so, you know, having the energy of, uh, you know, and the involvement of people like Betty Wright and, and you know, Questlove came in mm. and played on a tune. And these producers, Steve Greenberg and, and Michael Mangini, and, you know, having this team around me who was really you know, invested a lot. Um, there are, you know, a lot of energy and time and, and in some cases money and, you know, just, you know, that really believe in the project. And I think that's what allows you to, you know, to, to, to have a snowball kind of yeah. moment is, is the sort of combined momentum of having all of these people around who really believe in what you're doing. And, you know, that gives you 
your own, that you know that gives you a little bit of steam um, to to keep going too because you know I think it's natural most artists that's on some days kind of you know wonder if anybody's listening sure. or like especially whether... in this like limbo that you're in right now yeah. waiting for that record to come out for sure for sure you know you and you know having having that kind of support really goes a long way and especially now that we we have some partners in Europe and you know I I love Europe and that's kind of been uh, a place that I've. I, I mean, it's been a place where I've traveled and hadn't toured in the past. And so even just in the past few months going over there and we had some some really great success and built some great relationships in Europe as well. So, you know, between that and, and, and the U.S. and Canada, I think we're off to a really great start. Is everything still surreal at this point? A little bit. Yeah. yeah, a little bit. I mean, as, looking back on being in the studio with Betty Wright and and Questlove yeah. and you know having the Dap Kings play on this album and it feels a bit like a dream hopefully it'll continue to feel that way I feel like once you once you get to the point where things don't feel surreal and exciting then it's time to like well I mean take I a think, look in the mirror I think this life is this this I think show business is a little bit yeah. is always I mean, no matter what you're you know actors and dancers I think there is there's always this dichotomy between you know the reality of being an artist yeah. and those struggles and you know the yeah, and there's that, you know, combined with the fantasy and the surreality and, you know, the people who you might come in contact with who are completely inspiring and, and you can't even believe that that happened. And then, you know, and then you wake up in your apartment and you've got to do your dishes. And that's, you know, so it's I think we, we all kind of uh, experience a little bit of a, you know, sort of split personality. And I think that's part of what drives a lot of artists to, you know, drugs and alcohol is that. Is, is really having to come back down to reality after you've had that kind of success. I'm trying to get better about taking stock of how lucky I am that I get to do what I do for a living because it's really easy. And, you know, you're about to embark on this long tour and you're going to have some bad shows of and course, there's going to be some yeah. rough days. And it becomes really easy to end up taking that for granted. Absolutely. And I, that's, I mean, that's something that I'm working on just generally in life is cultivating gratitude. Yeah. yeah. I think most of us have struggled with some level of depression or yeah. anxiety or, or something over the years. I know I have. And we, we, you know, we now know that mindfulness and gratitude and these kinds of things are, you have to actively cultivate these skills. And, and once you do, you're happier. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say that at this point, you know, I, I really am taking stock of, of the opportunities that have been afforded me and the kind of people who have invested their, their time in, in me and this record and what we're doing. And I'm, I'm extremely grateful. There you go. That was Elise LeGros recorded that one a while back in preparation for her new record, which actually just came out last week. It's called Playing Chess, a collection of cover songs from Chess Records on S-Curve Records. Thanks so much to her for taking the time to do that. Thanks to the folks at Shorefire for helping set up that conversation. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the show. If you like the program, there are a number of ways to support us. You can like us on Facebook, rate us on iTunes, or your podcasts. If you've got any feedback... It's rolcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rolcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your RIYL related information. Uh, I think that's about it. Quick outro this week. So thanks for joining us and stick around because we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL. 